Welcome to the Story Discovery Podcast. I'm your host, J.W. McAteer. Coming up, you'll hear a new work from our free online publication, Etched Onyx Magazine. Please join me and co-host Melissa Collings after the reading when we talk with the author about their work and all things writing and otherwise. This podcast and all related materials are a production of Onyx Publications. All works, stories, and poems are copyright 2023. All rights reserved. On today's show, we have a short story titled Man Man, written and narrated by Bruce Overby. Settle in and enjoy. Man Man. I need to ask you something, Mr. Cushing, Megan said. Do you ever think of me in a sexual way? Tom froze in his seat, knowing he had indeed unleashed his eyes and imagination on this alluring 17-year-old, had even allowed his eyes to meet hers for fleeting, heart-pumping seconds. He recoiled, his shoulders dipping slightly as though crouching behind an invisible barrier. Listen, Megan, he said. I can see how I might have looked at you in a certain way that might have given you that impression, but if I did, it was wrong and inappropriate, and I shouldn't have done it. It's flattering, she said, leaning forward, Tom's eyes bolting to that extra inch of skin revealed at the drooping of her scoop-neck t-shirt, Megan noticing and sitting back immediately, folding her arms in front of her with authority. It's wrong, Tom said. I'm a teacher and you're a student at this school, and you're a minor. Her hazel eyes were full and round and clear and looking directly into his as she said nothing for long seconds. She was a tall, strong girl with a straight posture and a confident stride. Her hair was like a drape of silk that just reached her shoulders, with a fine yellow sheen and bangs feathering her forehead, and her skin was fair and smooth. She wore a light pink sweater that opened onto the beige scoop neck, and he knew, had taken particular notice, in fact, earlier in the day, of the ruffled paisley skirt now obscured by his desk, a skirt that left the length of her athlete's legs open to view. Her shoes were vans in a beige and pink leopard print, somehow childlike and seductive all at the same time. There were so few blemishes on her, the beginnings of a pimple on her right cheek, a tiny bump of some kind just below her collarbone, a pair of freckles on each cheekbone, all of which would have been invisible if she weren't so close to him now. Around the eyes and through the hair she reminded Tom of Krista, an administrative assistant he'd had in his marketing days. But you still haven't answered my question, she said finally. Yeah, I've seen you look at me, and yeah, that's part of the reason I'm here. But what I asked you was, do you ever think of me in a sexual way? Well, I'm sure you've realized by now that you're a beautiful girl, Megan, and any man with a pulse is going to entertain some amount of fantasy about a girl like you. Actually, I hadn't figured that out, she said, her hazel eyes drilling him once again. Not about a man-man, anyway, a man like you. I'm surrounded by boys all day, 
She went on. I know you probably can't talk about this because of some teacher or school rules or whatever, but I'm thinking your fantasies would be real. They wouldn't be fantasies if they were real, Megan. He let the mention of rules slide by, even though this conversation had already come very close to Child Protective Services territory. No, I mean you'd have actual experience, not some internet porn crap that gives you no idea how it actually feels. She paused here, her lips pressed, and inhaled deeply but silently through her nose. You'd be gentle is what I mean, Mr. Cushing. You don't know that. You don't know anything about me. She jutted her left eyebrow and uncrossed her arms and let them settle into her lap. I know you're not a 17 or 18-year-old jock trolling the hookup boards, she said, believing all those people who've been telling you since you were 13 how great you are. Her shoulders rose, drawing Tom's eyes again to her breasts, the stolen glance at teenage breasts he'd given himself hundreds of times, dozens of those times perhaps being caught. Her cheeks were flushed from walking the campus with her heavy backpack, and he looked on the cheeks for a moment, then out the window at the passing students with their new clothing and tousled hair. In class earlier, they had started their discussion of the sound and the fury, and Megan had raised her hand first and said, He's not right in some way. He's handicapped or something. Tom had scanned the room, checking the expressions on as many students as he could. Then he had asked what they all thought of Megan's comment. Davis Wills had said, I think he's on drugs, which drew a round of sniggering. Tom recalled now, smiling at Megan and moving across the room fitfully, energized by a student getting a piece of literature that Tom himself never would have gotten at that age. Listen, Megan, he said, I've been honest with you, and I'd probably be in a hell of a lot of trouble if anyone knew I was having this conversation with you so I think we should close this topic now and move on to something else. Did you have anything about the reading or the essay assignment you wanted to discuss? Mr. Cushing, she said, I basically have two choices right now. I can hop on the hookup board and have sex with some hormone-ranged Neanderthal who is either going to fumble and bumble through the whole thing or maybe even hurt me, or I can get into a serious relationship when I'm not really ready for that and the whole time run the risk of getting date-raped. Others had advised him to stop a kid in a situation like this, let her know he might have to report it so she could decide for herself whether to say anything more, but he let her go on. Either way, there's a pretty good chance I'm going to hate myself afterwards. Three years ago, he was thinking, this would have been a very short conversation, and he would definitely have been fucking this girl with the stunning hazel eyes. I'm asking you to have sex with me, Mr. Cushing, she said finally because I need to have some control. I need to know what I'm doing. If this had been Krista from his marketing days, he'd have glommed onto her already. And Megan was actually taller. He was sure of it, and more articulate. God, he thought, just taking the clothes off her, the paisley with the ruffles falling to the floor, the thong panties underneath, the bare cheeks, the bra releasing those pert little tits of hers, the surprise in those hazel eyes, amazement, perhaps, at his unstoppable desire for her, his manhood, his man-manhood, just what she wanted. He would have her in privacy, but not in darkness. No, he would want to see the whole of her, naked before him, a smallish patch of smooth hair between her legs, her labia neatly tucked, pristine. 
His job would be to show her, wouldn't it? God, are you fucking kidding me? Megan, you don't know anything about me. And frankly, I'm a little worried that you would even suggest something like this. It's cause for concern. Concern? I'll tell you who you should be concerned about, Mr. Cushing. You should be concerned about Allison, who just got date-raped, or Cynthia, who's pregnant now, or Tracy, who just had her first hookup and hasn't been right ever since. I really, truly don't think I'm the one you should be concerned about. And actually, I don't believe you really are. And of course, she was right. He didn't know Tracy, but Allison and Cynthia were in his classes, and he knew them as women, like Megan, adult women with whom he had exchanged those same glances. Indeed, Megan was not the one to be concerned about. He pitied and envied the kid who would end up in her arms at the end of all of this. And as for knowing you, she said, I know you. She was a pit bull. She wasn't letting up. You're the one teacher who's everywhere at this school, Mr. Cushing. You're not just at the football and basketball games. You're at cheerleading competitions, wrestling matches, water polo games. You're everywhere, which could be weird, but you're a nice guy. You're younger and you're not so, you know, superior. I think we all know you pretty well. Early on, he'd gotten to know the coaches and was now a regular in their early morning basketball games. This had led him to the games, the competitions, the matches, and in time, he'd gotten hooked. This very day, he would head out to the swimming meet, the team facing Westmont, with whom they were tied for first place. He would watch Tollison swim that graceful butterfly and be back in the condo with plenty of time to grade papers. His sitting room would be empty, an ironing board standing in the middle. He looked at her and saw a woman perhaps beyond him. Still, he could easily imagine the feel of her skin, the rise of her nipples, the tone of voice he would use as he narrated forbidden touches. He'd met her parents and had been surprised at their age, late fifties perhaps, Bill and Carolyn. Megan was a product, it turned out, of gentrified California, where the custom of delaying both marriage and children had led to 40-year-old, quote, young families. Megan's a very bright girl, he'd said to Bill. There are very few limits for a girl like her. Bill was a tall man with graying temples, dressed in pleated khaki slacks, a button-down collar, and a sport coat. Carolyn was also tall, wearing stretch leggings with flat shoes, a simple green blouse, and a long sweater jacket. She's clever, all right, Bill said. Need to know where to push her, though, Tom, where the gaps are. In English, there's not anything more she can do, really. She's just acing this class right down the line. Bill creased his eyes, and Tom felt compelled to say more. She's a hell of a writer, he said, and she seems to have a genuine interest in the literature, a hell of a lot more than I did at that age. He tried a knowing grin at this, but neither of them seemed amused. But I don't think you want me to recommend a lit major. She might enjoy reading more Faulkner, I guess, is all I can tell you. I don't think either of us would have any problems with her teaching literature, Tom, Bill said. If it's what she really wanted to do, Carolyn said. Well, I can say with confidence she would thrive in any communication-related field. Mass communications, rhetoric, journalism, even marketing. But I don't know how she feels about her other subjects, so I certainly can't recommend a direction for her. His mind had wandered then, he recalled, 
his own mention of marketing spawning a memory of one of his last product launches. Near the end, a meeting with the sales leadership where there had been total satisfaction around the room for perhaps the first time in his career. No further comment, a unanimous thumbs up, and his only durable memory was drinking afterwards and waking the next morning with planning for the next launch already underway. He shifted a sheet of paper in front of him then and said to Bill and Carolyn, She's just extremely bright, and my colleagues tell me she does well in all of her classes. Oh, this is the one she talks about, Bill said. You're her favorite teacher, Carolyn said. While he'd heard variations on this theme in parent conferences before, this one had surprised him. Megan, in class, was intelligent, but also aloof. He'd always assumed there were other subjects that really moved her. Well, he said, that puts a different spin on things, doesn't it? She would have been born in 1993, is what he was thinking now. A year when he would have been sitting in a classroom much like this, figuring out a way to bullshit his way through essay tests, doing bongs after school in Todd Harriman's garage with Todd and Sylvan Vasquez, running cross-country and trying to get dates with girls like Megan, failing most of the time. And what does a madman do now? Voices assaulted him as he asked himself this. Does a madman see the humor in it? Or is it all compassion for the child, for the circumstances that would lead a teenager to do such a thing, the new promiscuous technology-fueled teenage sex culture, the hookup boards and the date-rape drugs, the maddeningly persistent subjugation of young girls. Because what would happen next, Mr. Man-Man? Even if it all went perfectly well, Mr. Man-Man, what would become of the girl? What message would she go away with? What impression of human tenets like trust and respect and compassion and love? How are you going to feel, Mr. Man-Man, about being the central subject in 17 years of a tearful conversation between a troubled 34-year-old and her completely addled therapist. How is it you don't have a girlfriend, Mr. Cushing? She said suddenly. What makes you think I don't have a girlfriend? He said. She just cocked her head, jutted that eyebrow again, and looked at him. What? He said in protest. But of course, she was looking right through him, and he relented, smiling and shaking his head, feeling nothing short of astonished. Man, what have your parents done in creating a person like you? Actually, my parents are awesome, she said, sitting on her hands again and leaning forward, her strong shoulders rising. That's probably the worst thing about this, is not being able to tell them. I actually thought about it, if you can believe that but I decided it's one of those things you don't want to give them the chance, you know, to talk you out of it. They'd be right to talk you out of it, Megan, he said, beginning his surrender, but still not knowing what he would surrender to. I mean, you just said yourself, they're awesome. This is a situation where they'd be more awesome than ever. Yeah, she said, that's the one thing. He'd been in love before and he wondered if he might fall in love with Megan, turn into a pathetic, fawning boy himself and at the hands of a 17-year-old. It was not inconceivable. He'd been in love with May, a business analyst. They'd driven to the wine country and to Carmel, 
an inn with a balcony view that actually caught a bit of the Pacific. He'd lifted her and entered her and carried her to the bed where she'd ridden on top of him, light as a feather. Megan would be different, heavier, lying back. I noticed you haven't mentioned love, Megan, he said. Girls your age are supposed to be preoccupied with that, aren't they? Oh, please, Mr. Cushing. Please what? She just looked at him with that cocked head again. It's something you've got to consider, he said. You might think you've got this all figured out, but I, for one, have no idea where it would lead. What, you think you're going to be my boyfriend or something? I might develop feelings for you, Megan, is all I'm saying. And believe me, that would change things. Things would be different between you and me. She sat back in the chair and crossed her arms in front of her, looking into his eyes briefly, then detaching, scanning the surface of his desk without looking at anything in particular. And he realized she hadn't considered this. In all her ruminations, she hadn't considered that a man-man could actually love her. Love is dangerous, she said. What? You're all set up now, Mr. Cushing, so maybe you don't remember this, but in high school, you're surviving, and love makes you do stupid things. He scoffed inside, all set up. Love makes you do stupid things whether you're all set up or not, Megan. That's actually the great thing about it, but it's also why you shouldn't mess with it. She gathered her backpack from the floor, unzipped a side pocket, and pulled out a lip balm. I'm willing to take the chance, Mr. Cushing, if you are. She popped the cap and slid the balm over her lips, leaving them glossy and supple. You'll tell someone, he said. You've just been telling me I don't know you? Well, you don't know me either. She stood and leaned on the desk and lowered her voice to a whisper. So I'm still asking you, have sex with me. I think you'll like it and you'll really be helping me out. So think about it, okay? I'm not thinking about it, he said, knowing that it would be all he would think about for days and days. She flashed one last look at him as she went through the door, a smile, slight creases at the corners of her eyes that suggested someone older. He sat and looked around at the sturdy desks and nondescript walls and large windows, and his first feeling was one of dread at having to teach another class. But then he thought about the students and the substantial thing that had just happened to him and the truth in all of it, in the things Megan had said and in the thought of moving in this world with momentous things in the air, things larger than product launches or mortgage crises or even Silicon Valley itself. The swimmers would hit the water at around four with a chance at a league title young people who would be facing the only big thing some of them would ever win in their lives. His shoulders tensed at the thought of it. They would struggle and grimace. He'd seen it many times now. Their limbs would lunge and reach. And if only they could win, if only they could rise up against all the obstacles and win, they would celebrate. And so would he. You've just listened to Man Man, written by Bruce Overby. And we have Bruce on the show today to talk about this piece and writing life in general. Welcome to the show, Bruce. Thanks, JW. Happy to be here. Glad to have you on. 
And as always, we are joined by the intrepid Melissa Collings. I like that. Hello. <laughs> Welcome to the show, everybody. All right. Well, let's get into this uh, challenging story. I was telling Bruce before we started that the topic caused a little consternation on our end just because it's a little bit edgy. Um, <laughs> well, it was so well written and I enjoyed it. I thought we should go ahead and go with it. So, Bruce, tell us, your, tell us a little bit about yourself and then we'll get into some of the details on this story. Yeah, sure. Um, so I live in Silicon Valley or the Santa Clara Valley, which everybody thinks of these days as Silicon Valley. And I was born here long before it was Silicon Valley. My youth was spent in a semi-rural environment, riding my bike through orchards, et cetera. And, oh, wow. Um, oh, cool. Yeah, it was, it was very different nice. then. Yeah. And so as a teenager, Silicon, when I was about a teenager, Silicon Valley came to be. And uh, about the time I graduated from college, I was a journalism major and very much interested in being a writer. And that was essentially the inspiration, writing and sentences and images was, uh, was what I was all about. But then yeah. Silicon Valley happened. Yeah. <laughs> and they An needed and wanted everyone. <laughs> right, so, right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So the giant sucking sound of Silicon Valley uh, sucked <laughs> me up. I actually, I actually did work for a publishing company straight, straight out of college for a few years. But oh, wow. yeah, but then ultimately um, moved into tech and spent my career as a communicator in the technology business, essentially, yeah. is what I was. And always wanted to do fiction writing, started a novel when I was finishing up in college, and I give myself credit for recognizing, A, that it was terrible. <laughs> they always are at first. Yeah. <laughs> and B, why it was terrible. It was terrible because I frankly wasn't very well read at that point in my life. I, yeah, you know, that makes I, like sense. I say, I was a journalism student. I, right. You know, and, and then also because I hadn't had very much life experience, so I really didn't have yeah. much of a foundation to write about. Yeah. So I set the pen down and went about my Silicon Valley career, which was terrific and very rewarding in a number of ways. Um, and then around my mid-40s, decided to uh, take up fiction writing again. And I think I was 48 when I finished my MFA and started getting really nice. serious about it. And yeah. Um, yeah, so I'm a, I'm a late bloomer in the fiction game, and um, all good. Yeah, it's had some success. Yeah, had some success with some of my stories, and then it sounds uh, like it. Yeah, yeah, and then my uh, my debut novel just came out in November of 2022. So congratulations! congratulations. Thank you, thank you. We'll have to talk yeah. more about that later. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So that that's me in a nutshell. Great. Well, we're really excited to have the opportunity to chat with you and had the opportunity to read this piece. So um, why, so let's just talk about this story a little bit. Why did you choose this topic and how did you approach it? Well, so this story was actually written in 2011 originally. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, so it's, it's, um, it's, been, it's been submitted a few times, I will admit that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and in 2011, this was sort of right after the, the big recession, right? The, the 08, 09 recession. And dur during that time, there was a lot of folks in tech and particularly in the marketing function. The marketing function always seems to get really decimated during uh, economic downturns in the tech business yeah. hmm. um, uh, who were switching careers. Uh, you know, I we had this strange flood of people into the real estate business back in those days, as one example. I mean, yeah, a lot of sure. people just pouring out of these tech marketing departments and going into real estate, which 
is historically mm. a lucrative field here in California. Um, but in any event, there were also some who went back to sort of their earlier passions, in one case, that being teaching, right? So my protagonist is a former marketing guy who got sort of swept out in the, in the um, recession and went back to teaching. And so that whole sort of set of current events that was happening at that time is sort of an inspiration that I found could be some fertile ground to explore with fiction. And then at the same time, smartphones and social media were, media were kind of transforming teen sexuality at the time, right? And um, mm. I mean, I don't have children myself, but I was reading a lot about how that was all changing and um, how, yeah. um, you know, the, the whole concept of hookups. And so I, I just wanted to explore that, um, you know, all the way over into sort of the, the dark side of date rape drugs and that kind of thing. Yeah. And I wanted to explore that, but I wanted to do it through a strong female character, right? I didn't want to do it through a victim. Yeah, um, I like that. Right. And, and, and so those two things kind of melded together. And I ended up with this tech worker, right, Tom, in, a, in a, um, an impossible sort of moral dilemma, you know, a difficult situation. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and then this, this strong teenage girl making an argument, right, a, a, a strong argument, I feel. <laughs> uh, and, and, there, and there you go. Now you've got a story. Yeah. Well, so um, that's where it came from. Well, I really liked the character voice being kind of downtrodden beat up going into you know becoming a teacher and i i've known a couple teachers that you know transferred from other jobs uh into teaching and you know it is it's a totally different world and also i just thought this was somewhat relevant due to i mean a lot of teachers getting in trouble for having relationships yes including sexual with basically underage kids and so um the topic is definitely timely from that perspective so just to if i could jw just to comment on that it it kind of reminds me that when i graduated from high school in 1977 um um i actually uh you know walking through graduation and i was sort of paired side by side with a gal that i didn't really know that much i didn't know her well it was just random you know and, but she was um, 18 years old. I was 17 years old. So she was a legal adult. And she yeah. was openly dating a 22-year-old teacher at our school at the time. Wow. Uh, yeah, openly. I, yes, openly. Um, and because she was an adult, it well, was accepted. At, at, yeah. Frankly, also, it was the 1970s. So it was very different. Yeah. Yeah, Things different. are changed a ton. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's also yeah. California. <laughs> this is true. Which other this listeners would be like, yeah. But anyway. <laughs> this is very true. The Bay Area. Yes, very true. So anyway, it just reminded me of that because, yeah, um, as they should be, right? These, these, um, yeah. these are controversial topics that should be explored and should be addressed, I think. And again, I just found it a, a really interesting topic to explore. And while Tom is very much, um, he is very much damaged by his experience of getting flushed out of the very lucrative tech business. Right. Um, yeah. Which, by the way, is a recurring theme here. There are yeah. thousands of people walking around this valley you know, who have experienced that in one way or shape, way, shape or form or another. 
Um, yeah. he, he also is inspired by his new role as a teacher. Right. And what's mm -hmm. interesting and what, what and um, we can talk about how I go about, you know, writing and my process and that kind of thing. But my, my process is really as much an exploration as anything else. And mm -hmm. it was it was Megan. It was the teenager who sort of brought that out and made that point in the story. And she's yeah. the one who, once that character was speaking to me, she's the one who made that point to me as well. So um, I like that. Yeah, yeah. Very interesting. Well, yeah. you like to talk about controversial topics or rather write about them. What what draws you to do such a thing? Because a lot of people like to avoid those hot button issues so that they are not polarizing. They want to appeal to the masses. So by doing that, you kind of create a little friction. So tell us kind of how you came to writing about these issues. Well, I think that goes to the kind of writing that I like to do. I... Uh, I write as exploration. I get into writing to explore um, trials and tribulations of my own life, of course. Yeah. But also, I mean, I'm in, incessantly sort of thinking about I, my mind is a problem-solving mind, and I'm incessantly thinking about the great issues of the time all the time. I mean, I just I can't shut that off. You um, mentioned a little bit of that earlier that you thought it was important to talk about to talk about things that are common, but maybe we don't always discuss openly. Yeah, yeah. And um, and how that then uh, sort of manifests itself in the fiction is that it's just the foundation. It's not, right, I'm not then going to go in and send a message through my stories. I'm not going to go in and be didactic yeah. and, do, you know, mm -hmm. try to be, you know, the sage. It's just going to be there. It's just going to sort of act as the foundation of, what is really important to me in stories, which is the characters and yeah. the resonance, right? I, write, yeah. I, I I like to write stories because I like to write characters. I like to explore <laughs> characters. And I like to ex explore all of these things through people, you know, that I have created. Uh, and I also write stories that I hope will resonate. And so controversial topics, I, I always assume that if, the, if I have a good idea, somebody else has already had it. And an extension yeah. of that is if I'm thinking about something, other people are too, right? And, sure. Yeah. Right. And if my mind works this way, other people do too. So, um, so I, I try to go into these, um, or I go into these controversial topics because I think they'll resonate. And I try to write stories that will resonate. That's sort of one of my, um, one of, one of the, my passions, one of my forces behind go, you know, doing the fiction writing in the first place. Yeah. I think that's interesting because it's all in how you handle something, how you approach it, and and how it how it is received. Yeah, that can make a huge difference. That approach and that that foundation. So that's really interesting doing it through the fiction, and creating the characters. Yeah, and the joy in it. The joy in it is the sentences to me. I mean, the joy in it then is um, just crafting the sentences that sort of bring that into the finished piece that becomes a story like 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 man man that's sort of um yeah yeah it's an exploration and it's a reaction and uh and it's a a, a craft obviously right well it's interesting you talk about exploration because i think it was stephen king who said this but or he might have been referring to someone else who said that i write to find out what i think right and it's like <laughs> yeah. it just kind of comes out and you kind of discover it as you go and i think that's a really good Metaphor. There you go. Yeah. That's um, fantastic. 
But one of the things I like also about this story, though, is that so you see him saying no, it's very firm. He's like, obviously, this is not right. But we also see his thoughts, which is like, damn, this sucks. You know, this is hard to deal with. And then at the end, as the reader, I felt like I'm not sure, he, you know, where this is going to go. Like, you don't really know how it's going to end, end. You know what I mean? To play off the man, man, and end. Anyway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so witty. And so I really thought that, I thought that was really creative on your part. So you just kind of, the reader kind of thinks about it afterwards, which is where you want them to go. Yeah. yeah. So the traditional, this goes right back to my comment about resonance and around sort of keeping it resonant beyond the, mm-hmm. the last page. Right. And, yeah. um, you know, the, the, the typical story, story structure is, you know, the, the conflict and the rising action and then the resolution. And, you know, I always like to have that. And this, I was, I was taught this concept. I don't lay claim to this concept, but it, this concept of at the end, just having that little, little turning up at the very end that kind of, oh, yeah. um, right. It, no, don't completely resolve it, uh, you know, yeah. o- open it up a, a little bit at the end to, uh, to keep it in the reader's mind and sort of, and if with a, with a, with a controversial topic in particular, right. To, yeah. Yeah, sure. To, to stimulate that resonance, that continued thinking about the reader's own self-exploration of the controversial topic in yeah. the story. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, I haven't thought about it in those terms where you're leaving them, giving them a resolution that's satisfying, but letting them kind of create a little bit of that resolution themselves that they take with them. So that's that's smart. I like that. Yeah, cool. Like I said, can't, can't wait claim to it. Great writing <laughs> teachers. Very lucky. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it becomes a part of your narrative, you know. I think we're all just repeating things we've heard before. <laughs> sure, yeah. absolutely. Well, you've had a lot of short stories published, and so, but you've also written a novel that you mentioned just came out? Yeah. Or coming out? Yep. Just came um, out. Yeah. Well, I wanted to ask, do you prefer a short story to the long form, like the novel, or how, how have you approached that and been successful in that regard? I actually uh, very much prefer the sweep of the novel, you know, yeah. what, mm-hmm. I've, what okay. I've heard referred to as the larger canvas. Um, Laurie Moore said a novel is a job. <laughs> it's, it's, it's yeah. you know, as, right. It's, it's yeah. so true. Yeah, I, I'm sure she said something, something comparative about the short story, but I don't know what that was. But yeah, I, <laughs> Who cares about the short novel? Anyway. A novel is a job resonated. <laughs> it's with, not yeah, like a short yeah. story podcast or anything. <laughs> Um, and you know, the reasons are, you know, I mean, the novel, it offers you more room for error, kind of more space Mm. to, to to sort of get messy. Whereas with the short story, you're kind of more exposed, you know, there, there's kind of a higher standard. I've heard very good story writers who very much focus on story, describe it as something that really just has to be perfect before you let it go. Mm. Um, so I mean, short story. The yeah. short story. Yeah. I mean, you have to, yeah. Like I say, being, being that sort of smaller package, uh, it allows for more criticism, you know, it allows for more critical eye to look at it. Whereas with yeah. the, no- the novel, you know, you, you know, you've, you've got this larger sweep that I think, um, is a little more to some sense protected in that way. Hmm. Um, and now I'll always do stories, it, it, stories, stories are great for keeping the energy up. I mean, in simple terms, they give you something to submit. You know? Yeah, right. <laughs> you know? 
and resubmit and resubmit. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. the world of a writer. <laughs> yeah. yes. when you when you finish a uh, when you finish a novel, you know, you've just given yourself another hill to climb. It's like, yeah. okay, now, now I've got to get this thing published. So, um, uh, whereas with the story, uh, you know, you you've got something. Like I said, keeps the energy up. And so, you know, I found I I I spent. 11 years writing my novel and during that 11 years i think i penned you know three or four short stories you know two of which have now been published so. yeah great yeah. nice yeah so i tell, will always do that tell us a little bit about your novel what is it about um so my novel is the title is the cyclone release and it is it is a story set in silicon valley silicon valley and sort of the milieu here is the inspiration for me to get into writing. I mean, that was sort of why mm -hmm. I dove into it there in my mid forties. Um, and so it's set in Silicon Valley and it is a story about loss and belonging. Um, and I didn't know it was going to be a story about loss and belonging when oh, I started neat. it. And yeah. so this is that, you know, that sense of exploration that I get through fiction writing. But it's set in the late 90s when there was this incredible tech boom um, here in Silicon Valley. And there were just, I mean, you may all, you may recall, you know, there were, there were basically businesses were discovering the internet and the yeah. internet was ready for them to discover it. It yeah. was, you know, the technology had gotten to the point where you could actually do things with it. And... Um, and so startup companies right, left and center, millionaires being created every day, uh, just just absolute frenetic activity here in the Valley at that time. So um, I uh, first the first thing I did with my protagonist was I, I saddled him with a devastating, tragic loss. Um, his wife, his, his As wife is killed. Yes, exactly. His <laughs> wife, his wife is killed. Yeah, that's the first thing you've got to do. Um, so his wife is killed in an accident and he lapses into a six month depression and we join him as he's emerging from that. He's okay. not, he's not one of these people who's worked in startup companies. He doesn't know that environment, but he decides to go into that now to kind of prove himself to his dead wife in a way. I mean, to kind of like, hmm. um, justify basically make up for the six months he's just wasted, you know? disappearing, burning through his savings, all that kind of thing. Um, plus, you know, it's, it's the, again, the giant sucking sound. When these things are going on, if you're not in, you very much feel it. You feel like you're outside. And yeah. so anyway, I throw him into this startup environment that he's never been in before. And it's, as you can well imagine, uh, a bumpy road. And so from there, we have a love story. And we have this sense of, again, this sense of belonging to something larger than yourself. That's really the overarching theme. It's not just the protagonist. It's a diverse set of characters. It's, you know, it's immigrants from Vietnam and Germany and India, which is, mm. you know, which is what this place is. Uh, yeah. It's a challenge of working together to get something done, which is the Cyclone release is actually a software release. It's their project that they're all oh, working on. Oh, that's neat. Right. And so, yeah, that's the story. And right now I'm working on a sequel. So these characters have, have, oh, wow. have burrowed their way into my brain. I like uh, that. That's terrific. Yeah. I like that. It's fun when you do a sequel because then you have automatic backstory. Yes. Right. 
Yes. It's, it's it's very nice to do that. I I did the same thing, and when I was writing the second one, I was like, wow, it's so much richer because yeah, I already know this backstory because I wrote a whole novel about it. Yeah. So that's fun. Yeah. Um, so you, this is kind of a fictional but true representation of everything that you're seeing around you. Yes, and experiencing in the nineties. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, well, um, you know, my fiction. There's always an autobiographical foundation to what I'm doing, and for a novel, yeah. for something that you're going to have to hold your attention, like I said, for eleven years. <laughs> Um, yeah, you know, you, you kind of at least in my in my case, I had to know it. I mean, maybe one day I'll be a novelist. I mean, I'm getting a little old, so I probably won't. But maybe one day I'll be a novelist who spends two or three years researching something and then sits down to write the book about it. That's not Oof. that's that's not what I'm doing. You know? yeah, so I yeah. need that. I need that foundation of knowing what I'm writing. You know, I, yeah, I, I, I need to write sure. authenticity. Yeah. Well, what is your approach? So how did you, you know, you started 10 years ago. How did you make progress on it? Was it something, a schedule that you did every day? Was it sort of when you could? What's your writing process? Well, what's interesting, the answers are totally different if you ask, what is my writing process? And you ask, what was my writing process back then? <laughs> Fair enough. Well, <laughs> completely different. Because now I'm retired and I can't, I, it just, can't be as productive as I would, ironically, right? When I, had, really? when I had an eight to 10 hour a day job in, in tech, a demanding yeah. job, I was much more productive as a writer, which is so that ironic. That is and wild. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. you hear that story often, usually <laughs> no, it's right, the other right. way around. Yeah. I mean, so anyway, but I will get there. I will get the hang of this whole retirement thing eventually. But. <laughs> <laughs> But then I would rise at between four and five every morning. I always wanted to give my best mind to writing. I had been in the tech business for 20 years by that time. So I was very experienced with that. I'm not gonna mm. say it was rote, it wasn't. Obviously every day brought its challenges, but it was frankly, you know, a little bit more straightforward for me to get through my work day. Um, right. the, ch the, the challenge was a physical challenge because you know, uh, Silicon Valley work days can stretch to 10 hours, 11 hours. We have, mm. you know, I worked for global companies. So I often had meetings with people in India or in Europe. So, you know, you might have to take, I might have to interrupt my writing session to take a meeting at, you know, five in the morning or six. Yeah. Morning, right. Wow. Or take another meeting that night at 8 p.m. This is not unusual at all in these yeah. companies. Wow. But at the time, as a matter of course, I would, like I say, I would rise between four and five and I'd put in two hours of writing on the novel every day, um, every weekday. And I did that for several years. Uh, it's interesting because I, I was finished, you know, I was done. I had my manuscript and I was ready to start pitching and I pitched agents and, um, and the agents essentially declined <laughs> one after another after another and then finally a kind agent said to me uh well the thing is bruce you're you've got your page count in your cover letter and as soon as people hit that page count there or that word count they're they're gonna they're just gonna toss it away because it's 160,000 words so there's nobody who's gonna touch 160,000 word debut novel um, what, what's the genre it's it's literary Right. So oh, okay. Maybe, right. So a literary fiction, maybe a fantasy book. Somebody, if it's like really good, some somebody would like take a take a flyer on a new writer for something in another right. genre. I'm frankly not familiar with that, you know, those genres. But in any event, for literary fiction, 
And, and, and so there it was, aha, okay. So I spent a year or two reducing 160,000 word manuscript to around the 75,000 that you see today. Woof, um, man. Yeah, yeah. That is yeah. a huge jump. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Less But than you did half. it. I did, and characters were wiped away, and plot lines were wiped away. I mean, it was, it was uh, you know, slash and burn, baby. <laughs> yeah, yeah, killing those yeah. darlings, yeah. yeah so did yeah. you feel like you had a sharper, cleaner manuscript? Did you still love it, or did you long for the words that you cut? Um, no, I, I thought it was, it, uh, on balance, it was a great improvement. I, on balance, yeah. it's, Excellent. A, it's a much better book. Um, so interesting. There are a couple of characters that I did still. Well, you know, that's will be the sequel. writing a sequel. There you go. Right. I was going to say, <laughs> yeah. And they appear, yeah. There, there is go. no reason for them to go to waste. And, and you know, 80,000 words on the cutting room floor is not a bad thing to have when you're when you're writing a novel. So. That's impressive. Really. Yeah, it is. That's strong work. So once you did that, did you then achieve the agent? And go back to figuring uh, no, ones that you had... no, okay. no, I didn't. My success, my writing success, has been through contests. Um, at about the time I was getting my MFA, it was 2007. I got my MFA in 2008. Um, a short story won first prize in the Laurie and Hemingway short story competition. Wow! And so, right, so that was a huge charge for me. You know, yeah. Yeah. sure, uh, yes, yeah. When you get those boosts. Yeah, the MFA process can be brutalizing and the workshop process can be very brutalizing. And so, you know, your confidence can wane. And so that should yeah. get shot in the arm basically launched me through the next 11 years of writing the novel. And then with the novel. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. And with the novel. Yeah. I mean, it was like, hey, I can do this. Well, yeah. 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 <laughs> sure. That's all you need is that little bit, that little bit of encouragement. I tell yeah. you, it goes such a long way. Yeah. Um, and so this novel, I entered in some contests. Um, I, the agent um, submission processes, I had done it for about a year. It was yeah. halt and it's, you know, rejection after rejection. It's painful. And yeah. And so I kind of, I, I just said, well, I, I'm not ready to do that again. Yes, I'm going to have to. Yes, it's inevitable. I'll go there. Yeah, yeah. But for now, let me just try the contest route. Right? It worked before. And lo and behold, the Blue Moon Novel Competition from Madville Man. Publishing uh, chose me as a finalist, and there I am. Yeah, I came that to the publisher. Very uh, cool. So I don't have an agent. So if, if any of your uh, listeners are, <laughs> are literary agents, yeah. <laughs> BruceHoverby.com. Have a look. <laughs> we should totally, like, we should figure that out on our social media, which I don't really enjoy doing. But uh, we could find agents and things. You know, we could get them onto our as followers this is a we could be a potential resource you know that's a really good idea yeah yeah i like that <laughs> i like that anyway well believe it or not we're already getting close to 30 minutes here so maybe one more question before we hit our last one you mentioned earlier about the reading you know um, getting kind of caught back up on reading so what do you like to read and how has that impacted what you write uh yeah i read literary fiction i don't read very much genre fiction, so I don't really know it very well. Um, interesting. But, um, but interesting. I, yeah, you know, so Elizabeth Stroud, Colin McCann, Colson Whitehead are some of the authors I've, I've read recently. Um, and what I'm trying to do now, because I am being, you know, I have just been published with a small publisher, is mm -hmm. I, I also make a point of reading and reviewing the works of my peers. But mm -hmm. by that, I mean, you know, little known writers like myself who 
published with small publishers. Where do you, how do you get, where do you get those people that you're reading? Like how um, do you meet them or how are you finding their works? Well, the biggest source is the program that I got my MFA at Queen's ah, University of Charlotte. And so a sense. lot of my fellow graduates are publishing books and have been since we graduated. And I yeah. graduated 15 years ago. And so the, that that's, you know, first and foremost, because that's a community. We stick together. We pull for each other, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, and we have a similar foundation. We all know the same teachers and know the yeah. same writers and have many of the similar influences. So, um, yeah. yeah, so so that's the first one. And now I've got my publisher and my publisher puts out Magical Publishing probably puts out uh, 15, 20, maybe even more fiction titles a year. That's, um, a, that's a sizable amount. Yeah. Uh, to me, that's that's a year's worth of reading. I, I read very slowly and, you know, I'll be lucky if I read a book a month. So those are my nice. those are my two primary sources at the moment. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Very good. I like that. And so reading those things inspires your own writing. Yeah, it does. It does. You know, and you learn from everything you, you read. Um, yes. I, I guess the only other thing that I would um, would add to that is, you know, occasionally I have immersed myself so deeply into writers. Elizabeth Stroud is an example. I just adore every I've heard word she's, she's good. put yeah. on page. Um, I may drift into even emulating those writers. So yeah. when I'm when I'm deeply into something like a story, I'll try to find fiction that is uh, contrasts my voice as opposed to, you know, ah, interesting. I like that. I do. Yeah. Yeah. So it won't influence me as much. Yeah, it's yeah. easy to get influenced in a way. It's kind of funny. Yeah. Yeah. It is, but I don't know that that's a bad I thing. I agree. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I agree. I was listening to um, a lecture later this month. I'm doing it for my writing group, uh, a lecture for um, like how to get an agent and the process of getting an agent. And I was listening to agents talk recently about what draws them in or what makes a good writer, uh, a good author. And one of their points was in this particular lecture was that a good author reads all across the span you know multiple mm -hmm. genres multiple areas and i think you know you're doing the same thing by reading different people in, in different writing groups because there's no way they're all writing the exact same thing different styles all of that because you can bring something fresh to your own genre or non-genre you know yeah to your writing in general you bring something fresh a new thought a new idea you know i might pick up a sci-fi which is really probably not going to happen but you know <laughs> you might yeah i might actually yeah i, I would read you're supposed to read stuff. dune aren't you i think i thought you said uh isn't that one of steven's favorites no well he liked it he, he was watching a show but he likes isaac asimov oh okay uh, yeah. yeah he wrote a book my, my husband actually wrote a, he's not a writer but he wrote a good book Ooh, anyway that's yeah. that's beside the point but i mean if you just the techniques that these genres use or just different authors, they have a different voice, a different style, and you can be inspired by that. Not necessarily copy, but you're you're subconsciously influenced by Absolutely. it. Yeah, and but you are you can use that as inspiration to apply to your own writing and I think that's really it makes you a richer writer. Yeah. I think what it boils down to, Melissa, is fiction generates energy. And, it does, yes. Right? And you're essentially creating a subtle amount of 
in your prescription, yeah. right? And that generates yeah. energy, and, and that energy can feed your writing. I think that's very true. That's good advice. Yeah. Oh, I like that analogy. Very cool. Yeah, coming from Silicon Valley. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, let's see. Fiction, friction. <laughs> fiction, friction. That sounds like it could be right. a podcast. We got, oh, yeah. We need to add that into our uh, lingo for future shows. Yes. Um, all right. Well, we are up on time here. So we always ask this question at the end of the show, and that is, what's your favorite writing resource or writing advice kind of you've gained over the years that you might want to share with our curious listeners? Okay. It's a, it's a difficult question because as we have touched on now, there are so many different kinds of writers. So the advice is different. Oh, yeah. But, sure. But um, for a resource, one resource that I just have loved is um, Grey Wolf Press has a series called The Art Of. Um, so it's a series of books, writing instructional books, basically, by household name authors, um, mm. such as The Art of Time in Fiction, um, which is by Joan Silver. Subtext. I need to read that one. Yeah, that's a, oh, that's <laughs> such a good one. Actually, it's right yeah. here. <laughs> Look at the dog ears. Oh, my like, gosh. I like that. Yeah. He's showing his yeah. book with all his little uh, tabs sticking out of it. Yeah, yes. yeah, it's a really good one. Um, the Art of Subtext, which is by Charles Baxter. The Art of Voice by ZZ Packer. So it's a terrific series. And the books are small. You know, they're very short, um, but just dense with uh, with useful useful terrific very practical and useful advice so i i always recommend that series um nice and then as far as advice for new writers um you know great writing always happens in a room alone um but i really really always um encourage people to cultivate a community um yeah you know i think every writer needs people around them for whom writing is an important thing right so uh, agree yeah right uh, helps keep, uh, we talked about, you know, energy and the friction and yeah. the energy. So it helps keep the energy up. It helps keep things fresh. But I think the most I have, a, uh, I have the, the closest, some of the closest friends I have in the world. And what I think of as my only real college friends, with one exception. It's a, the group that I met when I was getting my MFA, which I started when I was 45 years old. Right, interesting, so yeah. That group of people spread all across the country. There's five of us, and it is a very tight-knit group of friends. And we read everybody's pages. You know, we uh, not only, it's, it's not just about supporting when things are down. That's the kind of, you know, supporting through rejection and all that kind of the supportive role. It's not just that. It's actually, like I say, generating the energy, keeping things fresh and um, and keeping the joy in it. You know, the sense of joy. Yeah. Right? yeah. Mm -hmm. So I always I always encourage people to whatever you've got to do, you know, take a workshop or, uh, you know, set up a local writing group or whatever. Get out of your, you know, the, the necessary you know, you in front of your page or you in front of your computer screen, which is how the work yeah. gets done. Step outside of that and, and, and cultivate a community. I think that's yeah. terrific. And I'll say too that, um, I don't know if our listeners will agree, but Melissa and I have talked about this, like, cause we're working on our own pieces, works, novels, short stories, et cetera. And every time we do one of these shows, this is that for me. Like I just get so much motivation from I, talking I with you way. all and hearing how you do it and, 
all the different approaches. I mean, they're just across the board, but in the end, it's kind of like you said, it's a shot in the arm, just keeps you going. And you're, you're so right, I think. It does. Yeah, it's a really That's great, fantastic. great point. Cool. Yeah, this has been so great. I think that's a great piece of advice and a great way to end the show. Yeah, terrific. Well, Bruce, thanks so much again for sharing this piece. I'm so glad we get to share it with the world, and we're so glad to have you on. Oh, yeah. it's been fun. It's been super fun. <laughs> it has been. Yeah. Good luck to you. Yes, definitely. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. If so, please do us a huge favor and give us a rating on your favorite podcast app. Also, be sure to tell your writer friends. Ratings and word of mouth are our best tools for expanding the reach of the magazine and podcast. The Story Discovery Podcast is a free narrated podcast of works that appear in Etched Onyx Magazine. Edited by J.W. McAteer. All stories and poems are available at onyxpublications.com. That's O-N-Y-X publications.com. If you're feeling extra generous, you can support us at patreon.com slash onyxpublications or buymeacoffee.com slash onyxpublication with no S. As a nano publishing house, we are always looking for new works to showcase. If you'd like to submit a story or poems for consideration, please visit the submissions page on our website. In the meantime, keep reading and writing.